everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of the Request for Explanation podcast. Today we've got me, Carol Nichols. Me, Manish. And me, Josh Triplett. And today we're going to be discussing ERFC 2136, the cargo build system integration. Josh, please introduce yourself. All right. So I'm Josh Triplett. I'm a principal engineer at Intel. I'm not speaking for Intel today, though. Uh, I'm a developer in the Rust community. I work on a number of different things, including uh, foreign function interface support. I worked on the Union RFC. And as of recently, I'm a member of the Rust cargo team. And a large part of the reason I was brought into the cargo team was because of my work on this RFC and related items. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited you're on the team now. Um, Me too. So, so can you give us a summary of what this RFC proposes to do? Sure. So by way of a bit of context, I think one of the strongest features that uh, Cargo, sorry, that Rust has is its integration with other languages. Uh, as somebody put it on one of the recent foreign function interface RFCs, Rust has the best FFI layer for C calling or being called by C other than C++. It's really unmatched by other languages. So because of that, there's a lot of interest in integrating Rust programs with all sorts of other software. You hear about things like the RSVG work that integrated it into the library, that kind of thing. And so Cargo is, as Rust's main build system, going to be a part of any story that you build there for how to build something that involves C and Rust and potentially other languages. And this RFC is about how do we get Cargo to not just build Rust code, but play nice with other build systems, whether it's the build system of a Linux distribution, the build system of a library, or the, uh, the large Uber build system of some uh, company that keeps everything in one big repository. So this is a, it's an experimental RFC. It's not designed to say, here's exactly how we're going to solve every facet of the problem. It's more aspirational. It's trying to lay out the philosophy for how we're going to solve this class of problems, what properties the correct solution will have, and then inspire some amount of work and experimentation, some of which will likely take place during this upcoming impl period. Awesome. Um, so you mentioned large build systems in monorepos. Can you give some examples of what some of those tools are and why a big company might want to use those to handle some of these things that Cargo currently handles rather than having Cargo handle them? Sure, absolutely. So uh, companies like Google and Facebook and Microsoft and others tend to have, uh, a lot of them have this approach where they put all of the company's software into one gigantic repository or repository system, the goal being to make it easier to coordinate and uh, make sure that every change across the company doesn't break something else elsewhere. And many of those also have a build system that integrates all of that. So there are things like Blaze and Bazel, which come out of Google, or uh, there's a system that comes out of Facebook. There's a couple other systems out there that are designed to be kind of a meta system above make, above uh, cargo, above whatever other build system you might want to use. 
and their job is to coordinate dependencies. So things like the, um, uh, you have this C library, you have a cargo-based Rust program that wants to consume that library, and you want to export an interface to be used by other code. And so you want to coordinate that and make sure that the dependencies and versions and similar are all handled properly. And the reason why people want to use those in addition to or instead of cargo is largely for uniformity, that they have one system for a half a dozen languages out there. They don't have to necessarily learn a bunch of language-specific build system bits. And even to the extent they do, they want to invoke that one system and have it build everything that needs building rather than treating Rust code one way, C code another way, and Python code another way. And I think that's a very reasonable thing for them to want to do. Okay, um, that makes sense. So what, what is the uh, proposed solution for these various problems? So there's a couple approaches that we're proposing to take here. And again, we're planning on doing some experimentation here. But there are two major cases people tend to care about. One is the case where they want to replace a large part of Cargo's functionality, and they want to do most of the work themselves, and they just want to know what it is Cargo was going to do. That's more the large corporate monorepo build system approach. The other is when you're in more of a Linux distribution mindset or similar, uh, when you're trying to build packages of things like uh, RipGrep or Git series or other things written in Rust into a Linux distribution, then you don't necessarily want to replace all of Cargo. It's more that you need to influence its policies for where does it obtain its source code from, where does it, how does it do a build, and what does it integrate with. And both of those have somewhat different solutions proposed. The, uh, in the case of a Linux distribution, you might just need a few extra hooks for things like, well, at this point I want to change where I'm getting this data from, or at this point I want to uh, look at uh, what my external dependencies are and how to get them using package config, for example, so that I have the right uh, build dependencies. On the other end of the spectrum, we have things like the monorepos where they may want to control a huge fraction of what they're trying to do. So the solution for the, uh, the monorepo case where they want to do most of the work themselves is that we're going to teach Cargo to provide more of its functionality as libraries, and then you can replace the glue more easily yourself. So you could ask Cargo, give me the manifest, and you might be able to provide that manifest if you're generating it from some other information. You could ask it to do a build, but you could also ask it, tell me what all the commands you would run are, or what all the source code involved in the build are, and what, you would, what options you would pass to go with that. And then each step of the way, you could decide, well, I don't actually want to let Cargo do that step. I'm going to take care of that. For instance, I'm not going to have Cargo go recursively build all of my dependencies. I've already got all of my dependencies recorded, and I want to build them exactly once and supply an RLib rather than building them once for each thing that depends on them, which is what Cargo does now. And on the flip side, in the Linux distribution case, where you just want to do a couple of small hooks, then uh, we're looking at a build system change where we would introduce these declarative build scripts that would allow you to say, um, 
rather than writing a build.rs that goes off and finds everything that you want to do, like let me build some code in C or let me run package config to find a library, you would declare that in your cargo.toml and say, well, I depend on this thing using package config or similar. That's something that the monorepo case cares about too because they don't want to run that code at build time. They would really like to detect that at the time they're invoking the big build and figure out that they have their dependencies and how to supply them. And so because of that, you'd have all that declarative information. You can pull it out and use it yourself. And Linux distributions like Debian or Fedora or similar could pull that same data out and use it to write you know, Debian control files or RPM metadata or similar. With all of these uh, like hooks and replacement parts, is there anything that's always going to be Cargo's responsibility no matter what? So it's an interesting question and there's some debate on that point. There are folks who are working on this kind of problem who feel like Cargo should always be involved in the solution. There are also folks who feel like, especially in some of the, the corporate monorepo cases, that once they've done all this work, what value is Cargo still giving them? And I think that answer may change over time as Cargo becomes more librarified and you can use specific bits of its functionality without all of it at once. But philosophically, I'd say what Cargo will always be responsible for is the uh, policy and layout of crates and the the portions of a cargo build system that are not just what mechanically cargo does, but more what uh, policy rather than mechanism cargo has. So this includes things like there will be a way to run tests and here's how tests will work. Part of that's Rust, part of that is cargo. There will be uh, these entry points for how you create binaries and they're in this directory and files named this or there are these environment variables that are provided by Cargo to the build system. Those are the kinds of things that are APIs to the crate itself. The expectation is that the crate should not have to change. So I think that's really what it boils down to. Even through all of this interesting work that we're talking about, we're still talking about an ordinary crate that should be buildable in an ordinary way using the standard Rust policies. The crate itself, in terms of Rust code, shouldn't have to be different to fit into this model, even if the metadata surrounding it and the surrounding build system is different. That's an API and we want to preserve that. So this is like a transition, or this is like the first step of a transition from Cargo as a tool to Cargo as a spec with Cargo the tool being the reference implementation that you can piecemeal slowly um, swap in and out with other build systems. Absolutely. And in particular, Cargo is also the orchestrator of the various Cargo library pieces. So if you have a portion to do X and a portion that consumes X and produces Y, Cargo, the command line tool, will be the thing that invokes all the standard steps in the standard order and flows the data through. And if you want to do something different, you'll either uh, provide a hook for that cargo command line tool or re-implement the spine of the operation yourself and plumb the data through yourself with potentially changes or ways you provide it differently. Yeah. So if, if I'm a developer at a company that uses such a build system, 
will I be still able to use tools like RLS or depend on external crates and stuff like that? Uh, absolutely, and I think that's a large part of why we're going to so much effort to specify this well. In terms of RLS, that's been a major request of we want to be able to go in and use the RLS and let it do builds and checks and similar, but wait, if we invoke Cargo in order to do that, then we're not able to make use of that because Cargo build doesn't necessarily do what we want. We're doing it with RESTC by hand. So hooking this in so that when RLS says, I want to build the thing, or I want to cargo check the thing, or I want to cargo test the thing, then it will hook into whatever hooks and machinery and similar that you've provided as part of your custom build system integration. So RLS is a major goal. In terms of depending on crates from Crates.io, that's actually an interesting question. You'll definitely be able to depend on external crates you should be able to obtain those crates from Crates.io, but a large part of why people want this, both in the Linux distribution case and in the corporate monorepo case, is that they want to build these hermetically sealed reproducible builds that do not touch the network at all. Goal number one for both of those cases is often we don't want to touch the network. We want to make sure our builds are self-contained completely. And so rather than depending on, you know, TOML equals this version number in order to get the TOML crate from Crates.io, you might instead download the source of that crate, use something similar to Cargo Vendor, and stuff it in your giant repository, or in the case of Debian, package it in a librust TOML dev package. And then your expectation is that when you depend on that crate in what should hopefully be a fairly normal way, then you will automatically obtain that crate from your local downloaded cached version of that and confirm that it's the working version and build it appropriately. So you'll still be able to use the crate ecosystem. You might not download it live at build time though. You might pre-download it, arrange to store it, commit it, package it, and then make use of the result using Cargo. Do we have any idea of like how how many people, how many users of Rust this would affect, and who who want this? How, like how many um, new users of Rust we might get if we had this feature, or how many Linux distributions we'd be making this easier for, or like if you're just a normal Rust, if you use Rust today for open source stuff, like would you be expected to interact with this much or would it only be in these certain cases? Uh, sure. So there's a few answers to that question, I think. If you're just an end user of Rust, not in a corporate environment, not in a distro environment, you're just getting your job done with Rust and it doesn't happen to involve any of those particular uh, features, then there's still a certain degree to which you should care because it affects how you would write build.rs scripts, for instance. You might write using this meta-build declarative layer. It affects things like the uh, ability to write a library that consumes something written in C or exports an interface to C. So if you are the author or maintainer of a dash sys crate or something consuming a dash sys crate, then you would care about how you consume C libraries and do that in a way that's 
easy for people who are consuming your crate to easily make use of. If, as far as how many new developers might, involve, might get involved because of this, I think it's hard to give a precise estimate, but what I would say is any Linux distribution that wants to package up Rust code in a reasonable way is going to have to make use of this feature. It's always possible to take something and, for instance, there's tools like Cargo Deb or other things like that. I, there might be an RPM variant of that that are designed to create kind of a, a quick package of just the binaries that result from doing a cargo build, cargo install. And those are really useful if what you want is a quick deployment scheme or a local package. But if you want to actually package something properly in a Linux distribution the way you can easily package C code today, if you want people to be able to apt install ripgrep or similar and just use it without thinking about the fact that it's written in Rust, then this is a critical feature for those distributions. And in the case of the corporate environment, I've actually had firsthand experience in exactly that. I've had conversations with people who are interested in using Rust for some new piece of interesting functionality or writing a tool, and they you know, didn't see any issue with the maturity of the language, didn't see any issue with the ecosystem, but the fact that it couldn't necessarily integrate and play nice with distribution build systems put it at a disadvantage compared to, for example, Go or other languages that have already figured out this story. So that was something where I think there's a number of people who are waiting on this feature or would see the availability of this feature and the packaging within Linux distributions and similar as something that would allow them to more readily choose Rust for their next bit of systems programming. And then anybody who's actually in a corporate environment that uses monorepos like this, this is a uh, make or break for them of do we allow them to use all the proper tools like RLS and cargo test and similar, or do we treat them as here, you're in a weird corner case. If we want them to be able to use Rust at all in a comfortable way, then they're going to need this. Yeah, that's kind of why I'm excited about this is that hopefully this will unlock more places being able to use Rust easily and exactly. give some more opportunities. So I don't just expect this to be the, uh, the thing that precipitates various announcements like X, Y, or Z is now written in Rust. I would expect this to more be the ability to add more people to the Rust Friends page who are, you know, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 person companies or people at those companies building interesting projects as well as uh, getting Linux distributions to really enjoy the use of Rust and start saying, well, why don't we write our system tools in Rust? The next random script we need to write, why don't we pull out Rust instead of Python or C or Perl? Yeah, so Manish, you actually said you were interested in this uh, based on what was in the core team keynote at RustConf. What, what interests you and what excites you about this? Well, so, um, a bunch of things. So one thing is like I, I was working on the Firefox port of servo style system and what we currently do is we vendor um, everything and then we just call cargo. However, there already is a build system in Firefox that orchestrates everything. So the end result of this is that you have your regular build and it's tracking the progress and it's like doing parallelism well and then suddenly the Rust build starts and then you get these Rust 
warnings and Rust compile messages interspersed in the regular stuff. Um, and of course, your um, your CPU grinds to a halt because Rust is like, oh, okay, you have eight cores. They're all mine now. Um, and stuff like that. There are a bunch of paper cuts there. At the same time, I like the Rust UI, but um, it would have been helpful to have all of this at the time when we were figuring this out. Um, we, we started off before Cargo Vendor existed and stuff like that, so it was much more manual back then. So that was like one reason why I'm interested in this, in that it would it affects me directly. And the second reason is, um, like Josh mentioned, build, build scripts sort of change in this new um, world. And from a security point of view, I'm super interested in making build, strip, build scripts easier to scope, where they ask for capabilities or they, um, they're easier to sandbox. Because right now, build scripts, you, if you compile something, if there's a malicious build script, it can do whatever it wants to your entire system. Whereas it would be nice if you could just have a build script that if you could just say that this build script does not do anything outside of its output directory and then sandbox it to work in that. And um, for this feature, we will need some more declarative stuff for the build script for this to work. So I'm basically looking at the fallout and the um, sort of collateral damage of this feature that adds, that, that makes it easy to do certain things that I'd like. That's an interesting point. I think. Um, the, the issue that you had regarding servo and integration into the build system, there's definitely ways we could improve that level of integration. I think some of those have actually taken place already in terms of things like job server integration with Make, but there's all sorts of additional things to go in that front. I feel like the, um, that level of integration is exactly the kind of thing we're trying to solve with this, that um, the security story is not one that Improving how declarative build scripts can be will definitely help in that regard. I don't know that we'll ever reach a point where you could run a completely untrusted crate and know that it will never do anything malicious at build time just because even if you assert that build scripts don't exist, there are still things like uh, procedural macros and other ways to run code at build time, leaving aside the fact that the resulting built code might be malicious or similar. But um, I certainly think the more we get towards declarative build systems, the more we'll be able to analyze and sandbox that kind of thing and be more confident that it doesn't do things it really shouldn't do. As an example, there are a hundred different ways people build C code at build time and integrate it into a crate. And if you do a search on crates.io and look at some of the build scripts, you'll see some of them do things like, let me go download a tarball over insecure HTTP, do no verification of it whatsoever, and then extract it and build it. So right. there are certainly things that could be better standardized. Yeah. yeah, I mean, from the procedural macro point of view, I was saying that the build script could declare what it needs, and then Cargo could sandbox it so that it will never do anything else. And procedural macros get sandboxed by default where they cannot access any files outside of the out directory. Um, that would absolutely be useful. There's no good reason that 
you couldn't declare procedural macros that, well, they don't need to access the network, they don't need to access external files, you could really run them inside of a, uh, a locked down Linux container, maybe turn SecComp on, and the only thing they can do is consume the data you hand them and produce more Rust code. That kind of thing would be really impressive, and especially if you regularize the concept of which external files you're allowed to access. For instance, one of these days I hope we have a bind gen macro using either proc macros or macros 2.0 more likely that just lets you say, I want to include foo.h, and it will create all the bindings for you. And that certainly needs to go read foo.h. It sure doesn't need to do much else other than read that header and any headers that are included. So to change the subject a little bit, um, how, how has this RFC changed over time? And one aspect that was particularly interesting to me was the different interpretations that people had about the word plugin. Sure. So this has definitely been something where we've explored this quite a bit over time. And uh, this was something that I had a number of conversations with the cargo team about in the context of the standard weekly cargo meetings. One of the biggest differences is that we've been listening very carefully to the people from Facebook or the people from Google or other companies like that who have these types of problems and trying to understand their use cases and work with those, as well as I've been representing kind of the Linux distribution point of view as well. And the biggest way this has changed over time, and one of the reasons this is an ERFC rather than an RFC with some very precise spec of what it is we want to do, is that we've realized that the, the surface area, kind of the um, uh, the actuation points where you might, the articulation points where you might want to affect where cargo is behaving differently with, when two points of it are joined. Those points we realized we don't actually know what all of those are yet. We used to figure, well, we know we want to handle builds and builds look roughly like this, so here's the one or two places we might want to hook that. And the more use cases we hear and the more discussions we have, the more we realize that people want to use a lot more flexibility than we might anticipate. And so we're looking to expand this to be, this is where we're getting more towards let's make Cargo more of a library that you can invoke the pieces you want of. So in the specific context of the word plugin and where that went, the, to me the concept of a plugin typically implies that you have some very specific hook location where you're saying, when you do this operation, I'd like to wrap around that in some interesting way. And so imagine that you have a step in cargo where you want to do some process X and that produces some data and then you want to consume that data in order to do process Y. You might add a hook in between that allows you to change the data such that cargo will always do X, then call your hook, and then do Y. And that will work well if what you want to do is change the data a little bit. But what if what you want to do is not invoke X at all and supply the data yourself? Or you want to, in, you, to put a caching layer around Y so that you don't have to rerun it if X hasn't changed. Maybe you want to run Y multiple times with different properties and see if the results match with some change to the flags, that kind of thing. The degree of functionality you might want is 
much more programmable there and is not captured by I want to put a hook between X and Y, but otherwise Cargo is orchestrating the order. Whereas if you're the person writing the glue, if you can say, well, I know that the steps involve first running X and then running Y, then you can decide what you do before, during, and after invoking each of those steps. You could decide to invoke them zero, one, or many times, and that gives you a lot more flexibility. So my uh, concern with the word plugin is that it very much limits the scope of what we're imagining somebody might do. And we're hoping to build something where it's not so much that you might have a plugin from Basil into Cargo, it's that you might want to take pieces of Cargo and make them a plugin of Basil, which is entirely the other way around. So there's um, there's a number of there's a number of other communities that have run into that same issue. The some of what I've been doing has come from experience with the Linux kernel community, which has what they call the mid-layer problem or the mid-layer mistake, and that boils down to the same thing of how your extensibility should work and making sure that that extensibility is in the form of here's a library that you can call to do all the interesting functionality. Feel free to hook it or use it or replace it in any way you see fit. Yeah, that, that exchange defining what plugin meant was really interesting to me because we all like to think like we're always being super precise, but it turns out English is really ambiguous and people have different ideas about what different things mean. So Absolutely. finding all that out and, and figuring out that, oh, we're actually talking about two different things is always interesting to me when it happens. Absolutely. And I feel like especially in the case of an ERFC where the primary product of the RFC is an English description and not necessarily a set of code interfaces or a precise specification of what we're going to do, then it is all the more important that we nail down the description of what it is we're proposing. So on that topic actually, I found that pretty interesting that so as far as I can tell, this is the second ERFC that's happened. And it's very different from the first one, where the first one was the coroutine RFC by Alex. And it was close to, um, it was really close to being a normal RFC in the sense that it defined pretty closely what um, the coroutines would look like. And it just left a lot of unresolved questions at the end. The only difference between that and a regular RFC was that it was like, well, here's a bit that we'll experiment with. Here's a bit that we'll experiment with. It had a bunch right. of questions. Whereas this RFC is way more in the experimental camp where it defines the problem very well. It defines um, focused areas for the solutions, but it does not actually explore the solutions at all. And it's more of, well, this is an intense experiment. This is what we want to poke at. Uh, please let Absolutely. us poke at it. Yeah. Which I found super interesting because this is the first time I've seen an RFC like that. So. Yeah, I found it really interesting as well, and I hope we do a lot more of them in the future. I think we're still, you know, pun fully intended, experimenting with the ERFC process. And I like that we're looking at various aspects of the design space there. I think we've had conversations in the past about RFCs where there might be a benefit to saying, let's describe the problem as precisely as possible. Let's talk about some properties of the correct solution, and then let's explore the solution space without necessarily saying this is what we propose to do. So 
the uh, async await or coroutines or similar ERFC was closer to that in that it did effectively say we, we see this problem, here's the class of problem we're trying to deal with. It proposed a solution, but it's very much doing it in the vein of hypothesis testing. We think this might be the right answer. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. As well as proposing, well, here's the least we have to add to the compiler in order to allow us to do this experiment and then we could change the macros or the interface completely. And so that is a bit of an experiment and iteration, but you're right, it's much closer to a spec. Here, there's a, a, a phrase that I'm fond of, of uh, hold off on proposing solutions. The notion being that it, you can explore much more interesting bits of the design space if you fully appreciate the problem before you try to nail down, well, here's a proposed solution, and then everyone anchors around that and kind of iteratively explores the design space around that solution. Here we're trying not to do that. We're trying to say, well, anything that meets these general properties would be a potentially viable solution. Let's see what that looks like. And I hope we do a lot more of this. Yeah, I'm very much like, let me get my hands on something. Let me try it out. And with the traditional RFC process, like, you have to use your imagination a lot and think about what it might feel like to use that code. Um, so I, I'd love to see more experimental RFCs, and I think it will let Absolutely. us iterate some more and maybe move away from the waterfallish model of design up front with the RFCs and, and be able to try sure. some things out. I do feel like we do a reasonable amount of iteration even with our RFCs and uh, on what the APIs look like. But it is true that when you're not running those APIs through a compiler, then it's always a little bit sketchy what might happen between then and when the rubber actually meets the road. But I think this still serves the one of the primary goals of the RFC process, which is in effect to tell people who are aspiring implementers that they're not wasting their time. That if you have an RFC, you have a mandate to go off and do an implementation, to run an experiment, to try something, and you know that you have ideological buy-in from the people who would accept that change. You're not going off and doing something where the response might be, we have fundamental issues with how we're doing this. With this ERFC, we have a very clear statement from the cargo team, we want this, we want a solution to this problem. Please tell us what that looks like. We'd love to work with you. And that mandate gives people the ability to go do that experiment with more confidence and know that there might be quibbling over the details, but the problem statement is accepted. So speaking of potential implementers, uh, there's a working group for this for the input period, right? Uh, there is, and I'm actually helping to head up that working group. And how's it going so far? Uh, so far, we are still like finalizing this RFC, and we haven't yet gone down the path of trying to implement. I would say that there are two next steps that need to happen in that regard. One is that there's a couple of follow-up RFCs that we need that go into how we can change cargo in a way that does not have backward compatibility concerns. Uh, I'm currently working on that RFC together with Yehuda Katz, and I uh, need to pick that back up and write some more of what I'm supposed to be writing on that. 
So I'm hoping to do some of that in the lead-in to uh, RustFest Zurich, which I'm going to be heading to in a few days. And the other aspect is I'm hoping to get that written and submitted in advance of RustFest Zurich, and then I'll be at the IMPL days, and I'm hoping that sometime during then I could work with some of the cargo developers, maybe get some other folks on board and start saying, this isn't that hard, let's just write it. Because the first step for what we want to do in terms of where we're going to go, the first bit I'd really love to see implemented is uh, we're going to implement that backward compatibility story for cargo, which involves something akin to a TOML schema for cargo.toml saying if you use these fields you need this version of cargo and have that all be automatically detected so you don't have to do any extra work and then use that mechanism to add a new field for a meta build script that says instead of getting your build.rs from the repository that you're building, you're going to get it from one of your dependencies. And then you can go depend on something in the Crates.io ecosystem. So this is something I've been interested in for a while of rather than saying we know everything you might want to be able to use, like package config metadata or C library metadata or running bind gen or running lollipop or whatever else it is you need to do in a build script, we could just say let's let you experiment with that in the crates ecosystem and the only thing we really need in cargo is a way to say this one of my dependencies is where you should get the build script from. Do the work based off of that and don't let me write a build.rs. And that's a the schema changes and the compatibility and versioning changes aside, which will probably be larger, the actual work to add such a field and invoke it should be amazingly small in cargo and then open up a huge opportunity for let's write a dozen packages that do uh, declarative replacements for bits of build.rs. So I'm hoping that that will kick off a large amount of interesting experimentation. And is there any kind of feedback as these things start to get built and start to be added to cargo? What kind of feedback are you looking for from uh, anyone who's had experience with build system tools or distros or anything like that? Sure. So I think there's three kinds of feedback that we're going to be getting, and we'll be getting them in very different ways. Uh, when it comes to things like meta build, declarative build systems, all of the approaches for how do we get that metadata appropriately handled, then in that regard, we're expecting to get feedback from the Crates.io ecosystem, from people building libraries, from people building proc macros, from people building anything where you feel like you need some kind of interesting build system integration in order to get what you're doing done. And that one I'm expecting will get that feedback as people adapt to use the new features of Cargo and as people try this in a library. And there'll be a bit of a pushing each other forward thing of one library will use this, somebody will start consuming that, they'll also want to consume something else that still uses build.rs. They might go back to that Cargo crate and say, well, could you do declarative stuff too? and there'll be some feedback and iteration as we get that process refined. I fully expect that we'll run into a few things where it's my build.rs script is a little more complicated than what the automation allows. Let's see if that works. On the flip side, we're going to get feedback from Linux distribution maintainers. I'm on the Debian cargo team, uh, Debian Rust team in general. 
uh, helping to package some of that and building the tools like Deb Cargo and DH Cargo. And I'm sure that you know I'll have some feedback. The rest of that team will have feedback. Counterparts in places like Fedora or Gentoo or Arch or any number of other places will have feedback. And that will come from those distribution maintainers into the various development discussion areas of Rust. But on the flip side, I'm also expecting that the corporate consumers of this, the folks who have the mono repos and who are doing work, some of them tend to be more, uh, I'm going to go off and do the work and experiment and see how well this works. And then that feedback often comes in the form of, let's talk at a conference, let's talk on the phone in a meeting. Some of it will show up on Rust internals on occasion, but some of it also comes through back channels and discussion and, you know, let's get together over coffee and talk about your build system issues. And so we'll obtain some of that feedback as well of, well, we've tried this thing. Does this help, you know, Facebook's buck system or does this help Google's Basil system? Does this work for you? And they'll start consuming it and using it and running into issues and we'll refine the API. Awesome. That sounds good and sounds like it'll be very exciting to see roll out. Do you have any closing questions, Manish? Uh, no. Any closing thoughts, Josh? I uh, just want to reiterate the same thing I said at the beginning of the, the call. I think that Rust has such an incredible story for foreign function interface, for integration with C, for integration with other languages and environments. I think that that's one of the reasons people care so much about this RFC and the family of related changes is that they see the possibility that Rust offers that they haven't had in so many other environments. And this is in some ways the last big family of steps they need in order to get what they need out of Rust and be able to use it. So I'm really excited about this. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for all your work you've done for this RFC and that you will be doing implementing and leading the working group. Um, as a reminder to our listeners, you can request RFCs that you'd like us to talk about if you go to is.gd slash RFE podcast. That'll take you to our issues. Uh, file an issue for any RFCs you want to talk about. Thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs>